tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boostbytaxday to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Hello, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's episode, I just want to quickly remind you all about Spiked Supporters. This is our new, and I'm glad to say, thriving donor community for those of you who give to Spiked regularly. So now those of you who give £5 or more each month or £50 or more each year can get exclusive perks. You can comment on articles, you can get discounts on all items in our shop, and you can get free and discounted tickets to Spiked events. We just had one last week with the great Rod Little in conversation with Brendan O'Neill. Spike supporters went for free and it was great to see so many of you there. So if you'd like to come along to any of our upcoming events, which we'll be announcing soon, and you're not already a Spike supporter, why not sign up today? Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to find out more and to sign up. Once again, that's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked Podcast. I'm Tom Slater. No Fraser and no Ella this week. So rather than just talk to myself, I've lined up two eminently qualified stand-ins in the form of Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spiked columnist Tim Black. Hello. So today we're going to talk about white privilege, the battle for Batley, the cancellation of Jester Walls and the Brexit anniversary. A report has claimed that terms such as white privilege have led to working class children being neglected and let down. The concept of white privilege is entirely wrong-headed because it implies collective guilt. It's a divisive term that undermines the cohesion of a school and of a country. It seems more like a culture war bomb. So to kick things off, let's talk about this report that came out from the Education Select Committee looking at the disadvantage in the education system of white working class students, those on free school meals. Brendan, you wrote about this this week. And even though this is something that people have been talking about for a long time, it's an established fact that white kids on free school meals in particular suffer disadvantages, are basically the least likely group to go to university, etc. This still managed to cause some uproar. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the response to it was the most interesting thing. I mean, the report itself from the Education Committee was fairly interesting. It had some good points. Nothing that was particularly explosive. As you say, Tom, it's stuff that we've known about and people have been talking about for a long time, which is that white working class kids, especially the poorer ones, so the ones who are on free school meals, do worse than pretty much every other social group in the education system. And when it comes to getting offered places at university, this is widely known. People have been talking about this for a long time. But the response to this report was just mind-blowing. What you had were all these guardianistas in particular and some people in the Labour Party in general, the, the woke left in general, basically saying, how dare you talk about the white working class? How dare you talk about this section of society? Which is ironic because these are the kind of people who love nothing more than talking about particular social groups, particular ethnic groups. But when you talk about the white working class, they lose the plot. And I think what it really, what that really demonstrates is that the, the issue they cannot handle talking about is class. And it really demonstrates how much the uh, any introduction of the uh, politics of class just interferes entirely with their focus on identity and race and gender. 
And I think what it shows is that we've ended up in the utterly surreal situation where the Tory party is trying to raise the issue of class and the left is saying, how dare you? We saw this with Liz Truss, Liz Truss a few months ago saying, we've got to stop talking so much about race and gender and we've got to start focusing on uh, social disparities and class disparities and geographical disparities and the left went completely nuts. And now you have this education um, report saying we've got to think about the particular problems that face working class, white working class members of society. And again, the, the left went nuts. So you have this, we're in a surreal situation where the left has been so captured by the politics of identity, the politics of race, the politics of sexuality, that you have a conservative government trying to say, let's talk about class issues. And you have the left responding with this kind of pearl clutching outrage. Mm. So I think that's fascinating and deserves a bit of interrogation. And Tim, to stay on the response for a minute it was interesting that not only did this cause uproar in the guardian as brendan was saying but you know even members of this select committee labor mps disavowing the report and the quote from one of them and you saw it echoed across the press was that the tories were stirring up a culture war or launching a culture war by getting into this issue what do you think they mean by that because it has just become like a kind of tourette's like response to anything the tories seem to be talking about in this space at the moment yeah well perhaps it is a tourette's like response to anything the tories seem to do uh, a lot of uh, labors and the broader Labour left uh, seem to respond in this kind of sort of knee-jerk way to anything the Tories do. I think it, it's been like a, almost like a through-the-looking-glass moment. Um, this report, which was actually relatively innocuous in terms of its actual uh, recommendations, because it simply challenged, you know, one of the great sort of pieties of kind of woke identitarian discourse, this idea of white privilege, as you say, they were accused of starting, the Tories in this case were accused of starting a culture war. And, you, and it's difficult for me to get my head around because the Tories were in some ways just pushing it back against an already existing culture war. White privilege is a, is, is a term which is actually, in, you know, inextricably linked to the culture war. Uh, and you then had an even more absurd sight. You had people like David Lammy, uh, uh, people like Diane Abbott, who uh, have been purveyors of kind of divisive identitarian politics, you know, for, for at least a, a, a decade or so. And they were saying things like, uh, how dare the Tories start a culture war? David Lammy even said, don't divide us. <laughs> you have this, so you have an absurd situation whereby people who spent the past 10 years, and certainly since Brexit, it dividing uh, the uh, dividing British society, you know, along identity lines, uh, basically complaining that the Tories are dividing society actually by pushing back against the very identitarian divisions which the likes of Lamy and uh, Abbott have been sowing. And Brendan, you touched on this in your piece, but there's a lot of kind of pushback from saying if you want to talk about class, talk about class, but why have you got to racialize it? Why mm. have you got to focus on this particular constituency? Isn't there malign motives in there? But you made the point that if anyone's been isolating and talking about and problematizing and pathologizing the white working class. It's been the left for the longest time. You think of any of the big kind of moral panics or big political debates of recent years, you know, Brexit was just blamed on white working class idiots, effectively, implicitly and explicitly most of the time. You know, even a lot of the stuff we talk about in relation to the nanny state, the kind of villain in the piece in that image is always some working class slob with a Greg's packet stuck to his tracksuit bottom. <laughs> and similarly with the discussion around racism, you know, despite all the talk about systemic racism and our institutions, again, the kind of implied menace is always a kind of EDL style working class thug. So where does this kind of animus, I guess, to the white working class come from? And it, I mean, it feels kind of obvious, but what, what's driving it, do you think? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a really important question of our time. And the thing is, I think um, you're absolutely right to raise that point of who made the white working class a thing. It wasn't 
people like us at Spiked, right? We don't think the working class is uniformly white. Of course it isn't, <laughs> although it, the majority of it is white as it happens. But there are um, black people and Asian people and all sorts of immigrant heritage communities who are part of the working class. Everyone is entirely familiar with that fact and everyone is entirely familiar with the fact that uh, over the past few decades, there have been great moments of unity between the white sections of the working class and the non-white sections of the working class in struggles for greater pay and greater, uh, better working conditions and so on. Everyone's familiar with that. And in fact, if anyone was uh, causing divisions between different sections of the working class, it was very often the trade union movement. It was very often the old labor movement who exploited those tensions for uh, cynical ends. So of course, the working class is not entirely white. But the reason that it's important to talk about the white working class is because that section of society has been targeted and demonized primarily by the woke left, by the kind of new establishment, by the new elites. And it is, it, it's them who have racialized the white working class. They've racialized them as these physically and morally unfit members of society, incapable of raising their children properly. Uh, they hold the wrong views. They wave flags. They do all these things you're not supposed to do. Um, they're obese. They're unintelligent. They're low information. They're knuckle draggers when we're talking about white working class football fans who are treated almost as animals and have been for a long time. It's, it's the new elites who have racialized the white working class, created this new racial category of problematic white people. Uh, and that's why it now is important to talk about the white working class specifically, because that's created its own specific problems. There's a culture of low expectations in white working class communities. They're falling behind in education. They feel left behind or they feel culturally insecure. And this stuff is not made up. It's a consequence of the culture war that has been launched against the white working classes. So that's the question. Who racialized the white working class? Who turned them into a specific community with its own problems? It was those culture warriors who pretend not to be culture warriors, as Tim says. It was they who did it. And and the the, the attempt to redress these problems now is not racism. It's not a culture war. It's simply an attempt to redress the inequalities faced by white working class people and to push back against the demonization of white working class communities. Have you ever taken the time to read the fine print that appears when you start browsing in incognito mode? It actually says that your activity might still be visible to your employer, your school or your internet service provider. How can they even call it incognito? If you really want to stop people from seeing the sites you visit, you need to do what I do and use ExpressVPN. Think about all the times you've used Wi-Fi at a coffee shop, a hotel, or even at your parents' house. Without ExpressVPN, every site you visit could be logged by the admin of that network. And that's still true, even when you're in incognito mode. Even worse, your home internet provider, whether it's BT, Virgin Media, TalkTalk, whoever, can also see and record your browsing data. In the US, they're legally allowed to sell that data to advertisers. ExpressVPN is an app that encrypts all of your network data and reroutes it through a network of secure servers. That means that everything you want to stay private actually stays private. ExpressVPN works on all your devices and is incredibly easy to use. The app literally has one button. You tap it to connect and your browsing activity is secure from prying eyes. So stop letting strangers invade your online privacy. Protect yourself at expressvpn.com slash spiked. 
Use our link at expressvpn.com slash spiked to get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash spiked to learn more. I want to move on to talk about the, the Batley and Spend by-election. It's less than a week away now. It's becoming kind of more fraught and fractious, but also interesting at the same time as the days go on. Now, a lot of people know there's a, there's a long backstory to this. Batley and Spen has been in the news for quite horrendous and tragic reasons over the over recent years. First, of course, with the murder of then MP there, Joe Cox, by far-right extremist. More recently, with the Batley Grammar School scandal in which a teacher was handed out of his job and basically put into hiding where he's still with his family because he showed Mohammed cartoons to his students. And this was kind of hopped on by various Islamists who shut the school down for a number of days, etc. And now you have this by-election, given that the outgoing MP is Tracy Brabin, who's become the West Yorkshire mayor. And all of these issues are kind of hanging there, really, all of these kinds of tensions, in a sense. So the choice by Labour was to go for Kim Leadbeater, who is the um, sister of Joe Cox, who was uh, born and raised in the area. And so a kind of attempt now, I guess, to try and cut through some of the kind of existing tensions and issues in that discussion, but it really hasn't been working. I mean, George Galloway, entered the race is eating into the uh, Muslim support, but also targeting kind of old Labour working class, white working class voters in that constituency. Polls suggesting that seemingly in part as a consequence of that, the Tories might edge it. So Tim, there's a lot to unpack here, but um, what do you think? Have have Labour messed this up? Is this going to be another kind of brick in the red wall that falls next week? Uh, Well, the polls certainly suggest that's going to happen. Uh, And I think as you yourself just mentioned, Labour do seem to have fluffed it. They did approach this election perhaps as an attempt to reverse the the collapse or crumbling of the of the red wall uh, and it looks at the moment that it's just going to accelerate it um, i think one of the most interesting things is the way in which labor's sort of identitarian turn and its identitarian you know its, its brand of identitarian politics it's almost like breaking up and you can see that in 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 Batley and Spen. You know, on the one hand, you've got Kim Ledbetter uh, desperately, uh, well, it is desperate, desperately trying to appeal to uh, the Muslim vote. Uh, you know, she's she's talked explicitly about um, making Palestine this, and Kashmir. Yeah, right? exactly, making this election. You know, um, you know, we, we are the pro-Palestine, pro-Palestinian rights party, which is a really odd way to approach a local by-election in West Yorkshire. Um, but you know, th- that seems to be the route she's taken. Um, but the odd thing, of course, is that. Labour's own identity politics is inherently contradictory. On the one hand, you want to appeal to actually a relatively, you know, ultra conservative, um, certainly certain segments of the Muslim community are ultra conservative. Labour at the same time embraces, you know, sort of uber ultra liberal issues such as trans issues. Now, so how do those things play out? How does Labour appeal? Uh, to one section of the electorate on identity grounds when it's, uh, it's identity and politics contradicts uh, the beliefs and attitudes of that identity segment they're appealing to. Uh, and I think you can see that playing out in Batman's Band. And Brendan, what's your thoughts on this? Because as Tim was pointing to, there, things have gotten increasingly nasty as well, because there's been some uh, messages doing the rounds on kind of WhatsApp groups in the area, kind of pointing to Leadbeater's sexuality, seemingly as people trying to weaponize that as a bit of a wedge issue. There is this kind of horrendous kind of identitarian kind of infighting going on in this seat. I, w- I want to talk about the free speech stuff in a second, but just on that question, what do you make of the, the mess that this is descended into where kind of identity issues are concerned? Yeah, I think we're witnessing the fraying of identity politics. I mean, it's been a long time coming. If you think back to 
those Muslim parents who protested outside a school in Birmingham about LGBT education, I actually thought they were making very good points as it happens because they were saying, you know, don't teach our six-year-old kid that a boy can become a girl. That's a sensible thing to, for, I think, for parents to say. Um, but of course, that caused a lot of tension between those kinds of members of society who the left and the Labour Party would normally try to appeal to and the left and the Labour Party's other views, which are the importance of gender fluidity and gay rights and all the rest of it. So that tension has been bubbling for a long time, and I think it's going to blow up. And it's, it is blowing up in Batley and Spen. This is why the Batley and Spen by-election, I think, is so important, because it's become a microcosm of politics, national politics, in the free speech stuff, which we'll talk about in a second, but also the, the problem with identity politics. One thing that I think it's really brought to the surface is um, – the racism inherent in in woke identity politics, and especially the racism of low expectations, and you can see that in so many different ways. Firstly, this unwillingness to talk about the possibility that there might be anti-Semitism in the Muslim community, uh, and that there might be more anti-Semitism in the Muslim community than in other sections of society. And that unwillingness to talk about that is part of the racism of low expectations, this view that we can't possibly have a critical, frank discussion about problems in the Muslim community because they'll be so offended, they won't be able to cope, we have to look after them and offer them protection. I mean, really nasty, patrician view of that section of society. But also the way in which Labour appeals to those members of society through issues like Palestine, like Kashmir, you know, apparently the only things they can possibly be interested in are Muslim-specific issues, international issues. Um, we couldn't possibly appeal to them in relation to the issue of freedom of speech or economic growth or all the other problems that need addressing in this country. So the, the, the relentless treatment of Muslim citizens as a, 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 a community apart from everyone else who have their own interests, their own concerns and, and must be treated in a particular way. That's also coming to the fore. And I think exploding that and, and making the case for treating Muslim citizens as equal citizens. I think that's an important point to make in relation to Batley and Spen. And Brenda, same with you for a second, just on this question of the looming kind of free speech questions, because of course there was the Batley grammar scandal. Uh, you wrote a piece for Spike this week saying that this really is the kind of key question of this by-election. And yet it seems like at least on the local level, there's an attempt to really, you know, quiet that over. I mean, the, the most recent thing that's happened in uh, recent days is Lawrence Fox trying to organise a free speech rally, trying to put this issue on the agenda, trying to invite the local candidates, etc. The Labour Council effectively banned that, citing COVID rules. So has this issue kind of been swept under the carpet? Is it still bubbling under the surface? What's your take on all that at this point? Yes, yeah, being completely swept under the carpet. And probably that's not even strong enough a metaphor for it. I mean, what's happened is that the political elites and the media elites and, and the educational elites have capitulated to the mob. That's what's happened. And by the mob, I'm referring to the very noisy, rather fundamentalist Islamist section of society, which thinks that it has the right to glide through life without ever having its religious beliefs called into question or its, or its uh, prophet insulted. That is not all Muslims. It's that noisy section of society. And, and the Batley Grammar School itself capitulated to that mob. The teaching unions capitulated. They refused to stand by this teacher. The political class have said almost nothing. I mean, Tracy Brabin, the former 
MP in that area was very cagey. She said, I'm glad the school apologised. And then she said, of course, it's terrible that the teacher has been hounded into hiding and is fearing for his life. You know, thanks a lot for that uh, recognition that this is an obscene situation. So that cowardice is the most important thing. It's far more important than the gang of noisy idiots who gathered outside Batley Grammar because they were only doing what you would expect them to do. They were being making a loud noise and saying, please don't insult our prophet, otherwise we will cry. I mean, that's what those people do. But the other sections of society fail to do what they're supposed to do. Teaching, teaching unions are meant to defend teachers. Uh, po- the political class in this supposedly um, modern secular nation is meant to defend freedom of speech. The left is supposed to stand up for public servants who are being harassed by religious hysterics. So the, the failing of those sections of society is the most in- important story from Batley and Spen, which is why I think this is the most important issue in that mm. by-election, so that we can clarify the crisis of freedom and the crisis of democracy in, in modern Britain. And, and stressing the fact that that teacher is still in hiding, mm. you know, all these, all these months later. Tim, where do you think that kind of cowardice comes from? I mean, because aside from everything else, aside from the reasons that um, Brenda's already kind of laid out, with a lot of these institutions, whether it's the Labour Party or whether it's the uh, National Education Union or whatever, I guess the other point to it is that these people don't believe in free speech to begin with. So what is it that they'll be standing up for if they tried to take a stand in this context. But, you know, why Why do you think there's been such a kind of failure across the piece to make this a live issue and to stand up for the, not just teacher, but teachers who have been caught in the centre of all of this? Well, there's obviously a, a larger question or a, a, a larger answer, which will, you know, involve the, you know, erosion of basic enlightenment and liberal principles and so on so on and so forth, and the kind of hollowing out of these institutions, which many of which uh, derive from a period, you know, be the 18th or 19th century, when such enlightenment values as freedom of speech, you know, uh, secularism, tolerance and so on, uh, w- you know, was still, still had a kind of vitality. Um, but I think you actually touched on the simple answer here right now, is that none of these institutions believe in very much at all. So they're giving in to, at, at the moment, the voice that has the most conviction behind it. Mm. Um, and, and, it's not that they believe in what. It's not that they themselves are particularly upset uh, by images of yeah, the exactly. Yeah. yeah, you know, I, I don't think that they want to restore blasphemy law, right? But almost <laughs> by not standing up against that mob outside the school, uh, they almost allow it to happen almost informally. You know, you effect, effectively have a teacher, ironically enough, who was teaching blasphemy. Mm. Uh, well. The idea of blasphemy. Yeah, I think he showed a picture. Not the of practice Muhammad, of it. Not the practice. Yeah. yeah, but you know, <laughs> so he was a. You know. You know, you would like to think he was sort of alerting his pupils to the dangers of uh, blasphemy law and making blasphemy, uh, 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 you know, something that uh, that is officially licensed and can be prosecuted by uh, the authorities. Uh, and then, almost by accident, we seem to be actually introducing real bona fide uh, blasphemy th- through the back door by not standing up against mm. precisely that section of society which wants to kind of restore it. Spiked is producing more content than ever. And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. 
So uh, while we're on the topic of institutions that don't believe in anything, we should probably touch on the Royal Academy and the Jester Walls scandal. So this is Jester Walls is a feminist textile artist, and she's the kind of latest gender critical feminist to kind of be cancelled and then uncancelled a short time later. So she had um, items in the Royal Academy shop, and because she'd written this gender critical blog post in 2019, which had caused a stir in the embroidery community, apparently, <laughs> which I didn't realise was so fractious. When people got wind that she was um, had items in this shop, there was a kind of low-level social media campaign to try and complain to anywhere that really sold her items. The Royal Academy reportedly, after just getting eight complaints, um, sent her a message saying that they were looking into this. She then soon after learns via their social media feed that they were dropping her work. They were thanking everyone who complained because they were stocking this transphobe. Now, in the days since, there's been a lot of outrage in the comment pages. Uh, we've interviewed her on Spiked. Um, she's done the media rounds. And now the Royal Academy have reversed their decision, saying that they failed in upholding their fundamental value of freedom of speech. But um, it's still kind of really striking how quickly they folded and then how quickly they kind of unfolded, if you like. But Brendan, what do you make of this particular scandal? It seems to sum up a lot about the kind of gender wars at the moment. Yeah, it does. And I think it's actually really shocking. It's really shocking that the Royal Academy of all institutions would do something like this. This is supposed to be an open, free, freewheeling artistic institution. I know it's quite stuffy and old-fashioned and everything, but it is supposed to be an institution that believes in artistic freedom. Also, this is an institution that has displays works by Caravaggio, who literally murdered someone, and Gauguin, who was a bit of a child abuser, and Picasso, who was as weird as hell, misogynistic, and definitely abused an orphan when he was a young man. You know, deeply unpleasant people who, by the way, it absolutely should, mm. whose works it should display, because, uh, you know, here at Spike, we believe in separating the art from the artist. Uh, so they're absolutely right to carry on displaying those people's works. But then it refused to stock the uh, creations of a woman who believes that if you have a penis, you are a man. Mm. I mean, this is what we're talking about now. Being gender critical is worse than being a paedophile. Exactly. <laughs> being gender critical is worse than being a paedophile. That is the situation we currently find ourselves in. And it was deeply disturbing what happened. And the Royal Academy screwed up very, very badly. And I think they know they screwed up because their press office went to ground for days on end and didn't say a single word, literally did not answer the phone for days <laughs> on end, and then eventually issued an apology. So it was really shocking. Jester Walls, I think, has been really admirable in all of this. And she's been incredibly ballsy and outspoken, more outspoken, I think, than some gender critical feminists who I think are sometimes a, a little bit too apologetic for the fact that they hold these supposedly controversial views. And she's not been apologetic at all, as you can see in the interview with Spite. But the whole thing is a useful reminder of why a publication like Spite talks about freedom of speech so much you know we it really is probably our most important issue because it is so important that artists and writers and every other person has the right to express themselves without being demonized without being blacklisted which is what happened here and without being arrested and without being imprisoned that's so important and that's why spite has um really flagged up the gender critical issue over the past few years and we've commissioned lots of the women or, or spoken to lots of the women who are concerned about the censorship of their perfectly reasonable points of view, because we want to make this a flashpoint issue of 21st century Britain. And I think we've done a really good job in doing that. And so uh, the more that people can do that, the more they can stand up for people like Jester Walls, uh, offer solidarity to 
other women and men who are criticizing the transgender cult, the more we'll be able to push back against the broader cult of censorship and the broader cult of offense taking. It does seem to be working because, as I was sort of alluding to earlier, there's been a series of cases like this, kind of victories for the turfs, if you like. (laughs) So there was Joe Phoenix and Rosa Friedman, the two gender critical academics who were no platform by Essex University. They've now issued an apology and will compensate for them, etc. Uh, there's been the mass exodus from Stonewall and their quality champion scheme, whatever it's called, which was seen to basically work to clamp down on gender critical voices in institutions who were signed up to it. And then of course the Maya Forstatter case, she won her appeal a couple of weeks ago. So you have this weird situation where on the one hand, cancel culture seems to be getting worse and worse, Tim, but at the same time in this one specific area, not least because of the concerted effort from spiked and gender critical feminists, everyone else to try and overturn it. But you know, is this something to celebrate? Is it built on shaky ground? I think it probably is built on shaky ground because the trans issue, because this is you know particularly the trans issue because it's such a minority pursuit really you know it, it's not something that carries a lot of it doesn't it doesn't carry a volume of support um it's just been particularly vocal uh, and it has met with very little opposition uh institutionally and, and you actually saw that with the just a walls case in that i think it was like eight or nine people yeah. complained about her egregious tweet that humans can't change sex and it was a blog post we say it was a bit longer than a tweet but Either way, it was egregious. I don't use that. It was, it was outrageous. I don't imagine many of them read it. So, that's the- so the, the Royal Academy goes with the flow because it believes that that's what you're meant to do now. You can't have someone possibly suggesting that it's, you know, at least pretty difficult for humans to change sex, you know. So Royal Academy says, right, take all our work out, right? Get it out of the shop, right? Like get out of the gift shop, right? Let's purge this, purge this evil fascist from our gift shop, right? <laughs> and, and they've done that. that fantastic. But what's interesting is that, that as I said, because it's not a particular, because it doesn't carry a particular volume, and you know, as I said, eight or nine complaints, it also makes it very easy to push back as well, certainly in this case. And it, you know, because I think there are probably far more people, far more gender critical feminists, I would suspect, than actually trans activists. They can actually make their, as soon as they made their case, the Royal Academy caved into them as well. But this is why it's almost on shaky ground, because you have these institutions, which we've seen this with the, the Batley Grammar School case, because they believe in so little, they just seem to go with, go with the flow. Mm. And on other issues, you know, the, uh, other identitarian issues, the flow is very much in one way at the moment. And that's what's particularly worrying. So finally, let's talk about the Brexit anniversary. So this week was the fifth anniversary of the EU referendum result. Uh, Brendan, you wrote about this on Spike this week, hailing it as the greatest moment in post-war European politics. And yet you wouldn't necessarily know that, I guess, looking right. at some of the coverage. I mean, I guess part of this would be the fact that... um Maybe the kind of Brexit spirit gets a little bit dampened by more than a year of house arrest or something approaching house arrest. But what do you kind of, you know, first of all, I guess, how should we remember Brexit? And do you think that some of that's getting lost at the moment? Yeah, I was really depressed about Brexit Day because I wrote that very emotional, stirring piece the day before. <laughs> I cried. You know. Yeah, so did I while I was writing it. The day before Brexit Day, thinking this everyone's going to be going wild on Brexit Day. There's going to be loads of people talking about it. It's going to be a big celebration. There was nothing. There was nothing. I mean, there were a few comments from politicians and Boris said something. I can't even remember what it was. Um, But there was nothing. Now, of course, there is the lockdown effect. People can't go out boozing in the way that they might traditionally have done. And you can't have street parties, which would have been my preference for Brexit Day. We would have had street <laughs> parties up and down the country. So there are limitations to how you can commemorate these kinds of things. And people might be feeling a bit down in general socially because of lockdown. But I think there's something else going on as well, which is that 
we have failed as a nation, in my view, to to treat Brexit as the wonderful breakthrough for democracy that it was. And that is not just down to the Remainer elites, who of course think Brexit is basically Nazism 2.0. It's not just down to them. It's also down to the supposedly Brexiteer wing of the establishment, who've long treated Brexit as just a technical task to be got done, you know, get Brexit done, and then we can move on to the important stuff. So there's been a failure across the board over the past five years to see Brexit for the magnificent moment, in Morrissey's words, that it was, which is that it was a, a, a magnificent revolt by ordinary people, a defiant revolt, explicitly defiant, off the establishment and a vote for a, an enlargement of British democracy. And I really do think it's very important if this country is ever to get back on its feet, it's very important that we start to institutionalise Brexit as something that it's worth celebrating, worth building upon, worth looking back on as being in keeping with all the other struggles for democracy in this country, from St. Peter's Field to the Chartists to the suffragettes. I, I would like to contextualise it within that great history rather than let it slip away into this embarrassing thing that we did. Mm. And it's, it's amazing. You almost forget how monumental it was as far as remembering that campaign, you know, everyone of the establishment, more or less, mm. lining up behind the European Union. You know, it was the corporate elite. It was the IMF and the globalist institutions. It was the political class, broadly speaking. It was the media class other than a few kind of um, newspapers. And the defiance to still say that, no, we are going to leave the European Union was so incredibly historic. And you could tell how historic it was by the meltdown that it caused. You know, it caused years and years of elite wrangling attempts to overturn the result of the Gina Miller case, all this stuff, which feels like it was 50 years ago. Really, really significant, really clarified how important Brexit was, but also how fragile democracy was up until that point, seemingly. But I, I guess the question is, Tim, like, how do we go about kind of reviving that now? Because feel, things feel very different now. Any of that kind of enthusiasm has inevitably been dampened by the past couple of years. People just desperately want to get back to normal, which is the way in which things are talked about. But, you know, is, is there any way that we can kind of remake that case, push it forward, bring back some of that spirit? Would it just take normal life to resume? I mean, what's the, work, the way forward from here? Well, there'd be obviously, I think there's a need to actually make the, the case for, you know, greater democratic reform. You know, that, that Brexit was a, as Brennan says, you know, was a and Morrissey, of course, uh, was a magnificent moment, but it was just almost like, it wasn't the end. It wasn't, it, you know, I, we've written about this on Spike, you know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, mission completed. It was just the beginning of the democratization of, of public life. And I think we, we need more of it. You know, there are obviously specific campaigns you can, uh, argue, you know, you can make arguments about a proportion representation and so on. But I think that the more we campaign and demand more power, I think that's the, the best way to approach it. Just return to, you know, something Ben was saying, because Ben is entirely correct to say that there hasn't been enough affirmation on the Brexiteer side of the democratic nature or the democratic point to Brexit. But it's also, I think he's almost been too kind to the, to, to the Remainer side, which has dominated the uh, discussion ever since. And that's, that's almost why I think that Brexit they f was always going to feel so flat. Because while I think people arguing for Brexit, people want to leave the EU, people want a great democracy, won the political battle, they obviously won the vote three times, four times, three times. Yeah, I've lost count of the number of elections we've had since 2016. But we've kind of lost the cultural battle over Brexit. Brexit is almost uniformly represented negatively as something we should be ashamed of, something uh, that we should feel guilty about, you know, be it TV, be it film, be it books and so on. You know, so in terms of the actual cultural narrative, Brexit has a very kind of 
um, depressed aura that, that hangs around it. Um, and that's, that's quite difficult to dislodge. So we don't end on a terribly depressing <laughs> point. We should remember, as I was saying, how, how important it was, as Tim was saying, given the fact that the cultural narrative has been so forged already, you do forget what a positive and optimistic moment that was, something that always gets lost in all this. So Brendan, just to kind of see us out, if, if you could sum up Brexit in a kind of sentence or a sentiment, what would you say it was? I would say that it was, it's the greatest moment of democracy in my lifetime, unquestionably. And I would say in the post-war period, this was ordinary people taking very seriously indeed the responsibility that was put on their shoulders, which was to determine the fate of the United Kingdom for the next few decades. And they did that through having discussions with their workmates, their friends, their family. They they traipsed out to vote 72%, which was a higher uh, turnout than, than normal. And they struck a chord for change in this country. That's something that we should really celebrate. It demonstrates, in fact, that democracy works. People take the vote seriously. They take themselves seriously. They take the meaning of citizenship seriously and they take the country seriously. That, if that's not worth celebrating, I don't know what is. So we really do have to push back against the negativity and celebrate Brexit as the great moment in British politics of the post-war period. Thank you for listening to The Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters to sign up now.